Okay, good morning everyone. Hopefully you're having a uh, meaningful and not difficult fast. We are of the privilege this morning of studying Parshas Pinchas together. We are in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash, page 876. And we'll dedicate our learning this morning for a refuah shleima, a speedy, complete, and painless recovery for our beloved friend, Baruch Tzvi Ben Rivka Basia, and all Cholo Yisrael, all those who are ill. As always, we'll give a, an overview of the parsha, and then we'll delve into the specific psukim. Our parsha begins where last week's, last week's parsha leaves off. The curtain falls at the end of last week's parsha. There's a horrific scene. A Jewish man, a Midianite woman, they cohabited in public in a great disgrace and an affront to the Jewish people, to the Rebona Shalom, to the Almighty Himself. Pinchas, who is moved without hesitation, without pause, without consultation, grabs a spear and violently drives it through both of them. And so the curtain falls at the end of last week's parsha with two intertwined bodies, two corpses, two murdered individuals who are bound by one spear. The Jewish people are looking on. Pinchas stands by, having been the vehicle of this great act of zealotry. Curtain rises on this week's parsha, and what would you expect to find? I don't know, but I probably would not expect to find God saying to Pinchas, well, good job, well done, amazing, fantastic. By the way, I'm awarding you a Nobel Peace Prize. A bris shalom. Here is the covenant of peace. We're not going to get into this now. It is, of course, the famous question at the beginning of the parsha. It's an unusual reward, a bris shalom. There's a whole series of questions one can ask at the beginning of the parsha, namely, God rewards Pinchas an unusual reward for the violent act he had done, a peace prize. Number two, why did he have to be awarded being a Kohen? Pinchas descends from Aaron, who is a Kohen. You know the old joke about the person who comes to the rabbi and he wants to pay to be able to be the Kohen? Everyone knows that old corny joke. So, that's this week's Pasha. Why is that the gift or the promise of the blessing to Pinchas? Number three, why is Pinchas rewarded not for the act of zealotry? But for Heshivas Chamasimi al Bnei Yisrael, for the fact that his act withdrew God's wrath against the Jewish people, why not reward him for the act of zealotry? How and what way did Pinchas's act remove the wrath of God from the Jewish people? A whole series of questions we're not going to get into, but I'll share with you the insight of Rabbi Salavitchik at the beginning of the parsha, where he says Pinchas is identified by his lineage. Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aaron Akoin. Why the lineage? Why does it provide his family? Says the Rav, his courageous action was a behavioral manifestation of the rich heritage in which he had been brought up at home. All great leaders have been at one time loyal followers. It's a great line. All great leaders have been at one time loyal followers. Pinchas harnessed the courage for his act of zeal by imitating his forebears. He was therefore prepared for the moment in history when the situation arose that required him to act and assume a role of leadership. Aaron is described as Oev Shalom, Rodev Shalom. Aaron is a lover of peace, he runs after peace. Some might mistakenly think Pinchas' actions were inconsistent with the tradition of his grandfather. Pinchas was off the derech. You might think, had Aaron been there at that moment, 
Aaron would react very differently. Comes the Torah and tells us, no, Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aaron. Part of the tradition he had from Aaron, the pursuit of peace, demanded this act of zealotry right now. But says the Rav, lest we think Pinchas is born in a vacuum, lest we think Pinchas emerges as a leader out of nowhere, we should know that all great leaders, all great leaders were at one time great followers, raised in the home of their great parents, or had the influence of their great teachers, and the influence of others. And the Torah is communicating that by telling us Pinchas didn't just enter the stage, he didn't come onto the scene out of nowhere, but he descends from, uh, from Elazar and from Aaron. We have another great zealot in Tanakh. Who's the other great zealot? Described as a Kanai? Elio Anavi. Only Elio Anavi, rather than getting a Yashikoach from Hashem, Elio Anavi is criticized by the Almighty. He's replaced by Elisha Anavi. Why is one act of zealotry rewarded? Why is it celebrated? The other act of zealotry is rejected. What was the difference between the Kanas of Pinchas and the Kanas of Elio? Zealotry in general. You know, the, the Gemara says that the rabbis at the time wanted to put Pinchas in Cherem for his act. Had God not intervened, interceded on his behalf and said, Great job! Well done! Nobel Peace Prize! Bris Shalom! Sanhedrin at the time were going to put him in Cherem. Zealotry, zealousness is not an admirable quality in the Jewish people and in the Torah person who acts impulsively, instinctively, person who acts violently and with zealousness. It's not something that we believe in. Elio Anavi is the norm. Pinchas and God's response to him are the exception. When is zealotry warranted? When is zealotry rejected? These are all great questions that come from our parsha, but not for now. Torah continues that we have a new attitude towards Midian because of a Midianite woman who was uh, the one who made us vulnerable by seducing a Jewish man. Therefore, we have a new kind of hostile attitude towards Midian. We see Midian as our adversaries because while Amalek was unsuccessful militarily, and while Bilam, Balak, Moab is unsuccessful trying to curse us spiritually, it's Midian who are successful in exposing our weak part, weak point, by the seduction of the Jewish man and the public display of promiscuity and licentiousness and the territory therefore tells us that we are to cultivate an adversarial relationship. A new census is taken after the Magaifa, the plague that strikes the Jewish people. There's a new census taken in order to evaluate the damage. Who are we? How many are we? And so on. I'll just tell you an interesting aside from within the middle of the census. And that is a comment when we get up to Yisachar. How do you pronounce that name? Yud Shin Shin Chaf Resh. How do you pronounce that? How should the Balkore read it? Yisachar or Yisachar? How many people here know someone named Yisachar? How many people here know someone named Yisachar? I don't. So how do you read it? It's written with two shins. What's the correct reading? But Salavechik had a very interesting tradition. The Pasuk says the descendants of Yisachar according to their families, Li Yashuv Mishpacha Sayashuvi. And Rashi here writes, 
Rashi here comments that Yashuv is the same person as Yov, listed as one of Yisachar's sons all the way back in Bereshis. So Das Zekunim cites a Medrash that explains the name change. After naming his child, Yisachar learns that Yov was also the name of a pagan god. So he names his son Yov, and then he realizes that he's given his son the same name as a pagan god that won't get him very far in yeshiva and on shidduch resumes. So he therefore took one of the Shin characters from his own name, and he gave it to his son. So if you go back to Bereshus, you'll see Yisachar names his son Yov, and here it's Yashuv. Where did the Shin for the name come from that all of a sudden he has a new name? He gave it from his own name. For this reason, said the Rav, during the reading of the Torah in the Velazhin Yeshiva, the name would be pronounced Yisachar until Parshas Pinchas, and after Parshas Pinchas it was pronounced Yisachar. So the Minog from Velazhin, I believe it was the Minog of Rabbi Salavechik, was that Parshas Pinchas, important for Bali Kriya to know, that Parshas Pinchas represents a transition point from pronouncing it Yisachar, then he lost one of the shins, he gave it to his son, to now pronouncing it Yisachar, Rav Shechter quotes this in Nefesh Arav. It's brought down here in the new Rav Chumash. So the census uh, concludes. The Levim again are counted separately. We've talked about that in the past. We have now Benos Slavchad step forward. And the five daughters of Slavchad have a very compelling argument. Our father died. We don't know the circumstances. It's ambiguous, the text. The circumstances of his death. The Gemara says... He might have been the Makoshesh Eitzim. He was the one who gathered the wood. If you remember, this great act of selflessness, he, he became a martyr, so to say. He died violating Shabbos in order to impress upon the Jewish people in the Midbar that you can't violate Shabbos. They say, look, our father died. He had no sons. We're five daughters. Five daughters. They probably thought that was a lot. But five daughters. And uh, we love Eretz Yisrael. We want our chilek. We want a portion. We want to be able to inherit. And of course, Moshe, it's one of the questions. Moshe doesn't know the answer. He asks, Hashem says, you know, Taka, that's a good, that's a good argument. So just like Pesach Sheni, those who felt that they were, uh, it was unfair, they couldn't participate in the Pesach because they were carrying the bones of Yosef or dealing with the Mes Mitzvah, also a debate. But they were able to initiate a new law of Pesach Sheni. Here, the Benos Tlavchad have the great merit of initiating a new law. And once we're on the Benos Tlavchad, the Torah then gets into the laws of inheritance. Um, those learning the Daf spent a lot of time on it recently in the last few weeks and months. What are the proper laws of Jewish inheritance, the hierarchy, the priorities, sons, daughters, and so on and so forth. I'll take a moment to tell you that many people have an emphasis on a halachic living will, end-of-life issues, and they neglect to have a halachic will. And the way that we establish our will, our estate planning, also has to be according to halacha. Because the halacha has specific hierarchy and protocols, if one is deviating from those protocols, which I highly recommend you do, if you want peace in your family, and modern-day poskim, it's one of the interesting areas of Jewish law, where modern-day poskim suggest employing the legal loopholes in order to avoid the biblical vision of estate planning because we want to preserve peace within the family. You don't want to tell your daughters, sorry, daughters don't inherit, only the sons inherit. 
or tell your sons, the oldest son is inheriting a double portion, sorry, even though there's good reason, in antiquity, the way economically families were structured with the greatest responsibility falling to the eldest son who takes the place of the father and responsibility towards the sons where the sons are the breadwinner of the family and the daughter will be supported and sustained from her husband until she has a husband, the brothers have a responsibility to take care of her. But since his, her husband will be the breadwinner of her family and will inherit his father, her brothers inherit their father because she doesn't need to. In other words, in antiquity, in Talmudic time, in biblical times, certainly the infrastructure of a family was such that that hierarchy made sense. Today, where we function obviously very differently, and one would great run the great risk, right? That after 120 years, when the family gathers in the lawyer's office around the table to reveal the estate plan, the will, and you say, your father was such a tzaddik, he, he left his will exactly according to the Torah. I don't think that they would sponsor Kiddush the next week for the father to celebrate what a tzaddik he was. It would create all kinds of problems. So we have, I'll put it, it's not so polite, but I'll call it legal loopholes in order to restructure a will. My point is, you have to use it. It's one paragraph addendum at the end of your legal will. It's not complicated. But you need to have this one paragraph addendum at the end of your legal will in order to also make it halakhically legal, in order to employ the legal loopholes at our disposal so that it's legal as well. So we have the laws of inheritance in our parsha. Then... Hashem shows Moshe the land. This is heartbreaking. You could literally shed a tear. Top of page 888. Hey Moshe, climb the mountain. I want you to look over. You see that? That's where you're not going. Yeah, you see over there, it's beautiful, it's magnificent. Jewish people are going to conquer it. It's the whole reason that I, that I recruited you to lead them out. You've dedicated your life for the last 40 years. Yeah, you see that? Magnificent, beautiful. There's going to be great rugalach and incredible vegetables, great omelet stations at the hotels over there. You see that country? Yeah, you're going to die like your brother. You're not going in. Very painful. Hey Moshe, let me just remind you, you blew it. Yes, you've been a faithful leader, faithful servant, the most humble of all men, but you blew it. When I told you to speak to the rock and you hit it, that was your chance. You blew it. You're not going in. The Medrash gives us a little bit more background about why he didn't go in, what the difference was. Rabbi Salavechik in the Chumashir quotes the Medrash, why he doesn't go in. Uh, sorry. He says, unlike Yoshua, hold on, where is this? Yeah. Immediately after the narrative of the, of the uh, regarding the daughters of Tzlavchad, God commands Moshe, go on the mountain. When God refused Moshe's request that he be allowed to pass over the Yardin to Israel, Moshe argued at the very least he should be buried there. Since he carried Yosef's casket in the desert for 40 long years to be buried in Israel, why should God not afford him the same privilege? God's answer comes from the Dvarim Rabbah, the Medrash. Yosef acknowledged his land and you did not acknowledge the land. Yosef acknowledged the land and you did not. 
When did Yosef acknowledge Eretz Yisrael and Moshe fail? In captivity, Yosef's very identity was tied to the land of Israel. He proclaimed in Bereshit's Perak Mem, I was stolen from the land of the Hebrews. Right? I used to live in Canaan, and Yosef says, when asked to identify himself, I am an individual who was taken captive. I was stolen from the land of the Hebrews. His entire identity is intertwined. His identity is wrapped up in his connection with Israel. In contrast, when Yisro's daughters mistakenly identify Moshe as an Egyptian to their father, they introduce Moshe. This is a nice man. We met him by the well. He's an Ish Mitzri. Moshe did not correct them. As a result of this omission, he did not merit being buried in the land of Israel. Wow, ouch. Yeah, so the Medrash says somewhat enigmatically just that, Yisra, that Yosef identified with the land. Moshe did not. And Rabbi Soloveitchik is filling in based on, these two, based on these two references. Very, very painful episode. Moshe then realizes he's not going in the land. What's the very next thing he does? He retires to Century Village in Florida. <laughs> no, that's not the next thing he does. What is the very next thing he does? He says, I'm going to need a successor. If I'm not going in with them, if I can't continue to lead them, these are my children, this is my flock. There needs to be a successor. And that's the section we're going to study more intensely together momentarily. How Moshe and God interact with identifying a successor. It adds actually salt to Moshe's wounds. Because Moshe is told by God, look there, you see, you're not going in. Whom does Moshe think will take over for him? His own children, his own progeny, his son. God said, mm, no, no. They're rabbi's kids. They're, they're, they're not, you know, if you saw the latest Jewish action. Rabbi's kids have their own problems. They're not, they can't take over. So instead it's going to be Yoshua. We'll look into this momentarily to see why. Torah then concludes, our Parsha then concludes with the, called the Parsha Samoadim. We have the laws of the different uh, Jewish holidays, the Jewish calendar. But first the Tumid, which is very significant, particularly today. Today is Shavasar Batamas. Today is the 17th of Tamas. With it we begin the Bein HaMetzarim, the three weeks culminating in our sitting on the floor, mourning, grieving, not only the loss of the two Bate Mikdash, the two temples, but so many calamities, tragedies, suffering, all the result of Silo Kashchina, when God withdraws His countenance, when God withdraws His providence, when God withdraws His presence, there is a vacuum created in which calamity, tragedy ensue. And so the totality of Jewish history, the suffering from collectively to individually, is all marked, it's all mourned during these three weeks. Launched today, the observance of Shavasar Batamas, the 17th of Tamas. What happened on the 17th of Tamas? The end of Gemarantinus tells us there were five things that happened, and since the close of the Talmud, more things have happened concurrent with that date on the Jewish calendar, the 17th of Tamas. What is the first one? Moshe came down from Harsinai today on Shavasar Batamas. He found the Jewish people worshipping an eagle and he smashed the luchos. First thing that happened, it's a Mishnah and Tainus, Chavches, is he broke the great tablets. There's a lot of lessons in the broken tablets. We've talked about that. The broken tablets and the whole tablets, luchos vishivri, luchos munachem ba'aron, both the whole tablets and the broken tablets, we preserve the brokenness 
We learn from brokenness. The Katzker Rebbe famously said, there is nothing as whole as a broken heart. Famous comment, I think of the Katzker, there is nothing so whole as a broken heart. Which it deserves elucidation, but we won't spend time now. So the notion of the broken tablets, the broken moments, are also moments that we learn from. Sometimes it's from a place of being broken or shattered that one finds truth about themselves, about relationships, one finds a faith and a strength they didn't know. So rather than discard the broken, shattered pieces, we preserve them, we hold on to them, we remember them, because they were a catalyst for our learning. So the first thing was Moshe broke the Luchos. In the time of the first base on Mikdash, in the year 586 BCE, this date, 586 BCE, today, Shavasar Batamas, the Karban Tamid stopped being offered. What was the Karban Tamid? So that's our parsha, page 890. One lamb is brought in the morning, one lamb is brought in the afternoon. Our prayer is modeled after Shacharis in the morning, Mincha in the afternoon. But in the time of the Beis HaMikdash, every single day, 365 days a year, rain, sleet, or snow, Shabbos, Yom Tif, Yom Kippur, weekday, it didn't matter what was happening. This sacrifice was offered. It was offered every morning. It was offered every afternoon. It was offered on behalf of the Jewish people. And it had such a great significance, it represented Har Sinai. It represented a reconnection back to our origins, to our beginnings, to our holy and our sacred Torah. What's so special about this carbon? So what happened? In the year 586 BCE, today Shavasar Batamas, in the time of the first temple, there was a shortage of sheep because they didn't have access to be able to get more. And therefore, the carbon Tamid stopped. Carbon Tamid stopping is indeed a tremendous tragedy. When the Jewish people have a consistency every single day for years and years and years and decades and centuries of a carbon Tamid being offered, and then it has to be stopped. The consistency, the constancy, the presence of the atonement, of the, of the knowledge that one is receiving a certain level of elevation, and to know that that's stopped, to know it's over, the record streak is broken, it's done, it's finished is something which is devastating. The Ein Yaakov, a commentary on the Agadic sections of the Gemara, of Yaakov Ibn Chaviv quotes a medrash in the introduction to Ein Yaakov. It's a famous medrash. Describes the rabbis in the second century who gathered to debate what is the most important pasuk in the Torah, what is the motto of the Jewish people. I'm not going to take the time to deliver this to you dramatically. Many of you have heard it before, but it ties back to our parsha and to Shavasar Batamas. They gathered, they got together, it's probably at the Homoak, somewhere else, and they debated what is the most important pasuk in the Torah. Ben Zoma said, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Achad. This is the statement of monotheism, of ethical monotheism, our belief in God. Is there a greater bumper sticker for the Jewish people than Shema? Rabbi Akiva, who himself exemplified the significance of Shema by having it be the last words on his lips when he was murdered by the Romans. But he said, no, it's not Shema. Rabbi Kiva, after burying 24,000 students, after seeing the results of a lack of kavod, of sinas chinam, 
Rabbi Akiva says, no, it's not Shema. What's the most significant pasuk in the Torah? What's the motto, the bumper sticker of the Jewish people? It is? Interpersonal relationships. You have to love your neighbor as yourself. Those are two compelling arguments. We could probably have a great debate. Shema versus We could have a great debate. But the third opinion comes along and we would not predict it. It's the Pasuk from our Parsha Pinchas this morning. Offer a lamb in the morning and a lamb in the afternoon. And the rabbis all gathered and they took a vote and which opinion won? Which opinion? Keves Echad. Keves Echad. Compared to Shema, So again, this communicates the significance of consistency. The Korban Tamid, Masmid, Timidius, to have consistency and constancy, to always be connected, is something which is of utmost importance in the Jewish people. You know, the... Um, those who learn the daf can relate to this. Because the daf provides a consistency in your life. You never miss a day. That was the vision of Rav Meir Shapiro. I told the story last week, two weeks ago, in, uh, in his yeshiva, in Lublin, Yeshiva's Chachmei Lublin, which was turned into a nursing school, but it's been restored as a base medrash. The dorm of the yeshiva is now a hotel. One I don't think Rav Meir Shapiro would be particularly proud of or would want to stay at, but it's been turned into a hotel. And the base medrash was a nursing school, was the uh, major lecture hall, has been restored as a base medrash, a beautiful Aaron Kodesh, and so on and so forth. And there I told the story, which is told by Rabbi Friend, of what inspired Rabbi Meir Shapiro to introduce the daf. The daf is incredible. There's hundreds of thousands of people around the world who are all literally on the same page. It doesn't matter what section of the koto they daven or can't daven. It doesn't matter what kind of yarmulke they wear. It doesn't matter what kind of background they have, it doesn't matter what language they're learning, the daf in, they're on the same page around the world, all initiated by Rav Meir Shapiro in 1923. We're not talking about something which has existed for very long at all. And what was the inspiration? What precipitated this wonderful idea? He was seven or eight years old, came home one day, did I say this last week? He was seven or eight years old, one day he sees his mother crying, he says, Mommy, why are you crying? She says, because your Malamed didn't come today. Okay, Malamed didn't come today. He came yesterday, he'll come tomorrow. Okay, why are you crying? She takes her son and she says to him, because you don't understand. If you miss one day of Torah learning, you could never ever make it up. If you miss one day of Torah learning, you can never ever make it up. And when he sees his mother's passion for his Torah learning, he later described that at that young age, he began to have this dream of initiating a project. How long is that project? How long is Shas? Seven years. 2,711 pages. Seven and a half years. To learn the daf every day, seven and a half years, and not miss a day, you beat Cal Ripken Jr., the Iron Man's record, by over 400 days. Cal Ripken Jr. has the record of not missing a game, and uh, he's known as the Iron Man. And if you learn the daf consistently, you beat his record by 400 days. That's what the daf provides. Imagine you have a daf that goes on, not for weeks or months or years or decades, longer. And then one day the daf ceases. 
because you can no longer have the daf. Imagine the pain, the devastation, that Shavasar Batamas today, the end of that consistency, of that opportunity to bring this carbon tamid, what it represented. Jews knew that no matter the weather, they knew no matter the day, they knew no matter this, whatever was happening in the world, the carbon tamid would be offered until 586 BCE when that, when that began, when that ceased after the siege of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian forces, and they no longer had access to bringing in more sheep. Just the other things that happened today, Shavas or Batamas, the Rabbim says, you know, these fast days are days of tshuva, the days of reflection, of introspection. We don't just refrain from food and drink to punish ourselves, we do so to elevate ourselves. We do so to interrupt the momentum of our lives and to stop and say, I have a soul, I am a soul and I have a body. I'm going to put the pleasures of the body on hold for a day and remind myself I need to nourish my soul. I need to protect my soul. That is the purpose of, of a fast day. In Sefer Malachim Beis, it tells us that King Menashe, one of the worst Jewish kings, put an idol in the holy sanctuary of the Beis HaMikdash on Shavasar Batamas. The, that same Gemara and Tainus tells us that in the time of the Roman persecution, the second Beis HaMikdash, Apostomus, the captain of the forces who were occupying Yerushalayim, put an put a, uh, idol in the Beis HaMikdash and burned the Torah, this great act of rebelliousness, of blasphemy, of desecration. It was on Shavasar Batamas. Titus Arasha, Titus the Roman, the great uh, Roman general, breached the walls of Yerushalayim in the year 70 C. Pope Gregory the Ninth ordered the confiscation of all manuscripts of the Talmud. It was Shavasar Batamas in the year 1239. In 1391, more than 4,000 Jews were killed in Toledo, Spain on Shavasar Batamas. In 1559, the Jewish quarter of Prague was burned and looted. The Kovna Geta was liquidated on Shavasar Batamas 1944. And in 1970, Libya ordered the confiscation of Jewish property. These are just among the things, the same way that Tishabov is designated a day of Jewish tragedy and calamity, so too Shavasar Batamas corresponds with all of these things. And that's a pretty, if you haven't, felt you had a reason to feel sad today yet, that'll, uh, that'll definitely do it. Okay, let's go back and get into the specific sukkah I wanted to look at, which were about how Moshe chooses a successor. It's on page 888 in the article Stone Chumash, Perach of Zion, Pasuk Tezvav, chapter 27, verse 15. By Daber Moshe El Hashem Lemor. Moshe speaks to God, Lemor. Usually God speaks to Moshe, Lemor. Here Moshe speaks to God, Lemor, saying, it's unusual. We've interpreted in the past that Lemor is licensed to repeat what was said. What's the default? If someone tells you something, do you have to presume it's in confidence unless they explicitly tell you you can repeat it? Or can you assume it's public unless they explicitly tell you it's in confidence? Which is the default assumption? The Gemara says the default is it's in confidence unless they explicitly tell you that you can repeat it. And that's why when it says Lemur, God spoke to Moshe each time he tells him and it's okay to repeat this. It's not in confidence. You're allowed to repeat it. Says Rashi, Vaydaber Moshe Lashem, Lodia Shvachan Shot Sadikim, Shekishinftarum and Aola Menichim Tsarkan, Vaoskim Bitsarchit Sibur. Isn't it amazing 
This is the righteous, says Rashi. When Moshe is just told by God, your lifelong dream of entering the land, it's not happening. And just like your brother was gathered to his people, a euphemism for died, so too you're going to die. And what does Moshe go to do? He says, well, I got to retire. I got to find a new leader. I got to get my affairs in order. I got to take care of a million and one other things. It's not what Moshe does. What does Moshe do? He's oskim b'tzar He says, really? I have limited time left? Then I better spend every moment making sure the people are taken care of. That there's a succession plan in place that things won't fall apart with my demise. Lemor, says Rashi, Amr lo heshivani imatam imana lehemparnes in love. Lemor is Moshe's plea to God. I'm asking for a successor. Please respond to me. Tell me, will you be appointing a successor or not? Pasuk Tezayin. Yifkod Hashem lokeh ruchos l'chol basar ish al ha'eda. So Moshe pleased with God. Yifkod, please appoint elokeh ruchos. You who are the God of what's ruchos? How does he translate it? The God of the spirits of all flesh. Haruchos elokeh ruchos l'chol basar. We haven't seen that name for God yet. It's an unusual name. You, God, who are the God of the spirit of all flesh, appoint an Ish al Haida, appoint a man over this gathering. Who will go out before them and come in before them, who will bring them out, who will bring them in. And please, God, do not let them be like a flock that have no shepherd. They'll get lost, they'll wander, they'll be stolen. Please, God. It's a beautiful image that even though Moshe just received this devastating news, he doesn't turn inward, but he remains committed to his children, to the Jewish people. God, please respond. Will you agree to a successor? You, God, who know the spirit of all flesh, please appoint, appoint someone. And what are the criteria, the qualifications for that someone? They go out, they come in, they bring them in, they bring them out, and don't leave them as a flock without a shepherd. It's very unusual. What's going on over here? So, Yifkod Hashem, look at Rashi. Once Moshe heard all the laws of inheritance and succession, the five daughters of Tzlavchad come and say, Where's our inheritance? Moshe says, okay, well, if I'm not making it into the land of Israel, I'm going to die. And we just talked about inheritance. It's time for me to cash in that my sons will inherit my position of greatness. Big discussion in halacha. Not for now. Big discussions in halacha about whether there is rabbinic succession Succession among Chazanim, Balei Kriya, as inheritance. Does the rabbi's son have a right to get his shteller? Does the Chazan's son have a right to the Chazan's position? Does the Balkore's son have a right to the Balkore's position? Not because of the kavod involved, maybe not only, but because it was a parnasa, it was a paid position. It doesn't mean, you know, you have a chazaka from Maftir, for, for Musaf, on the Shabbos of Parshas, whatever. It means you were the chazan, you, that was your livelihood. 
So do, do these positions pass an inheritance? It's a big discussion, a fascinating discussion in halacha. So here, Moshe Rabbeinu says, Sheyushu Banayis Gdulasi, I didn't really, I wasn't really thinking about that, Moshe. That was not my direction. I was more thinking that Yoshua. Why? Because Yoshua never left the tent. And here he quotes a Pasuk. From uh, from Mishlei, which Chazal interpret to be about about Yeshua himself, so Moshe anticipates. Moshe thinks it's going to his sons. He just hears about inheritance. God delivers yet another piece of sad news. Said it's not going to his own family, but I'm sure satisfying for Moshe that it's going to Yeshua. Why does Moshe call God Elokeha Ruchos Lechol Basar? You are the God who knows the spirit of all flesh. Look at Rashi. I love this Rashi. It's quoting a Medrash Tanchuma. Moshe Rabbeinu says to God, Look, you know God, this is a tough position. And what makes it a tough position? What makes it a tough position? Because whoever is going to lead this very diverse people need to be able to relate and meet the needs of very diverse people. They're not the same. They're very different in every which way. They have different interests. They have different needs. They have different demands. They have different expectations. They have different backgrounds, different personalities. They have different everything. And whoever's going to take over has to be able to connect and to relate has to be able to meet those diverse needs, has to be able to juggle all these balls and keep them in the air at the same time and not drop any. So God, you are the Elokeo Ruchos Lachol Basar. You, who are the most intimately aware and familiar with the diversity of your children, you know better than anyone how different they all are and how challenging it is to create a cohesive people, a unified people out of that diversity. You know how delicate it is, how easily it can split and diverge. So you, God, who are aware and familiar with the risks and the challenges, with the needs of the diversity of the Jewish people, I need you to find somebody. Find a manhig. Who can be sovel, each one, according to who they are. What is that word, sovel? Rash is quoting the Medrash Tanchum. What does it mean that they can be sovel, each one, according to who they are? What is the word sovel? I'll give you a hint. Sovel is the same show as savlanut. Sovel, savlanut. So that you will have the patience to deal with each one. But it's more than just that. And here I take you back to Parshas Va'era and Sefer Shmos. Pasuk says, "Vaydaber Hashem Moshe bilaron vaytzavim b'nei Yisrael v'yaparo melch Mitzrayim lotzias b'nei Yisrael me'eretz Mitzrayim." When God recruits Moshe and Aaron, He says, "I need you to go down to Egypt, and I want you to communicate a message of deliverance, liberation. It's time to go." And to whom is that message delivered? To Pasuk says, 
Vayitzavim commanded to El Bnei Yisrael v'el Paro Melech Mitzrayim. I understand why Paro Melech Mitzrayim needs the message. The Jewish people need Vayitzavim. You have to command, you have to instruct. So the Mepharshim explain, it's not El, it's Al Bnei Yisrael. But Rashi there in Parshas Vayira says, Tziva Aleim Lahanhigam Benachas Vilizbol Osam. Moshe and Aaron were commanded to lead the people benachas with calmness, peacefully, with serenity, and vilizbol osam. So part of the original recruitment of Moshe and Aaron as the leaders was that within them was the capacity lizbol osam. And here now, fast forward, the end of Moshe's life, when he has shown tremendous patience, foreboding, he has been tremendous and now he's looking for a successor. And what does he say to God is the most important quality in that successor? They have to be able to. They have to be able to accept each and every one. And the Shla Kadosh, Bishaya Harvitz, the Shla Kadosh, says, You see from that Rashi in Parshas Vaira, and our Rashi here in Parshas Pinchas, says the Shla Kadosh that. The key essential trait to be an effective leader in your family, among your children, in your business, among your employees, as the rabbi or the gabbai or the shul president, whatever position or capacity of leadership, the key quality or trait is savlanut, savlanus, lisbolosam, the capacity to, to have patience. But it's really more than patience. It's really tolerance. Revolba explains, um, Revolba explains that when the Jewish people were suffering in Egypt, it's described, what is the nature of their suffering? Moshe has commanded, Take them out from under the sivlos. What does the word sivlos there mean? Burden, suffering. So how could that same word Mitachas sivlos means burden or suffering. It also means savlanut and patience. Lisbol to be patient. Why would the same word for patience and suffering? Why would it be the same? So Revolba, Zatzal, the great Mashkiach, explains very simply. What is patience? It is the capacity to suffer. Patience is the ability to live with tension. The ability to live with discomfort. The ability to live with displeasure. Patience is that everything right now is not the way I want. Okay. I can deal with it. Okay. It's not a problem. Okay. Stuck in traffic. I'm waiting at the doctor. I'm waiting for my spouse to get ready. I'm waiting for the website to download. I'm waiting for the... Okay. Savlanut. Patience is I can live with the sivlos. I can live with... Whatever is challenging me, whatever is the pain. So the more accurate translation of savlanut is not patience, but it's sufferance. One who's patient can live with a little suffering or a little discomfort or a little inconvenience. That is the greatness of that quality. The altar of Kelm said it's the most important quality a human being can have. If you lack the savlanut, you won't have anything else. Anger, envy, jealousy, every other bad quality... If you lack the capacity of Lisbon, if 
you lack the savlanus, if you lack the capacity to be in the savlos, then there's no way you could conquer all the other negative traits. So the most important trait to master is that the altar of Kelm, upon which, upon the foundation you can build other character traits, is savlanu. So Moshe, who had experienced this firsthand, such beautiful imagery, now at the end of his life and the end of his service, his term, Moshe turns to God and he says, look, I'm very nervous about the future, nervous about the children, nervous about this nation. You are the Elokei If there's anyone who knows how complicated and challenging and difficult these people are, it's you. If there's anyone who knows how diverse and different the different needs, the different special interest groups, the different demands, the different cliques and factions, it's you. So please appoint a leader. And what is there? What are the criteria? Let's keep going weiter. What are the criteria? Asher yitzel lefnehem, asher yavo lefnehem, who will go out before them and come in before them. Says Rashi, Lo kederach malchei ha'umo sheyoshim bateim mashachim zchayel oseil ha'milchama. Elokemosha asisiyani. It's not like the other nations, where the higher a rank you have, the less of the battlefront you see. The higher your rank, the further in the back you get to go. No. And the Jewish people says, Moshe, you need to find a leader who's willing to do what I did. I was out front in the war in the battle with Sichon Vaog. As it says later with Yoshua, and David Barosh. The leader has to be the first one out and the first one in. And this remains true. Fast forward thousands of years. What is the motto of the Israeli army today? Acharai. Acharai. In other armies, the higher your rank, the more you're in the back, and you tell everyone else. You go in, you go there, you, stay, you spread out this way. Not in the Israeli army. In the Israeli army, the higher your rank, Acharai. After me, follow me. By example. So the first thing Moshe says is, this leader can't uh, be sitting on the couch telling everyone else what to do. It has to be a spirit of acharai. It's got to be an example. He's got to put it out on the line. And he will be able to advance them with his merits. And so on. The Sforno has a different interpretation. It says the Sforno, Militarily, he will go out first. Diplomacy. He has to have diplomacy and military experience. He has to have both. He has to know how to operate a government and he has to know how to operate on the battlefield. These are both things. Both things. Look at the Balaturim. Says the Balaturim. In these two psukim, there are 28 letters. And that's why Yeshua merited to lead the people for 28 years. The chavches of koach are the 28 words in these psukim that describe leadership. And don't forget, Hashem gives us the koach he gives us this capacity to acharai and lasos chayav. A beautiful balatur. Vaiter. Pasuk yurches.
ויאמר שם המשה, קח לך את יהושע בן נון, איש אשר רוח בו. You know, you told me I was the Elokei Aruchos. I know the spirit of man. Well, I know the spirit of Yoshua, and he's our man. Go take Yoshua bin Nun. He is a man who has ruach bo. V'samachtes yadcha alav, and place your hand on him. Says Rashi. Kach l'cha kachenu b'dvarim. Ashrecha shachazachisa lahanik banav shel makom. Go win him over with words. Kach doesn't mean go handcuff Yoshua and drag him kicking and screaming to take over. Kach says Rashi means bidvarim. Go with words, recruit him. And what is your recruiting statement? Ashracha, ooh, how blessed, how fortunate, how wonderful you are, how lucky you are. Shazachisa, that you've merited lahanik banav shamakom. To be a manig in Kla Yisrael. To be a leader in the Jewish people. Oh, it doesn't get better than that. It's the greatest merit. It is the greatest merit there is. Ayin Sifri in Baaloscha. Look at the Medrash Sifri in Pasha's Baaloscha. It says, Moshe, tell Yahushua, kach bedvarim, go take him with your words and tell him. Yahushua, maybe you saw that I had to deal with the rebellion and the complaints and the misery and the difficulty and the... No. Wow. Ashrecha shezachisa lahanik banav shamakom. Yahushua, you've won the lottery. You won the lottery. How lucky you are that your days and nights will be filled with leading the Jewish people. God tells Moshe, Yehoshua is an isha sheruach bo, says Rashi, kasher sha'alta sheyuchal aloch keneged rucho shekol echad ve'echad. Just as you asked, Yehoshua is the one like you who can relate to the diversity of people. He can keep all the balls in the air simultaneously without dropping any. And therefore, v'samachta es yadcha alav, tein lo meturgaman sheyidrosh bechayecha, so Moshe, I want you to demonstrate Yehoshua's leadership even in your life. This is what's called succession planning. What doesn't happen in most Jewish organizations. But this is what's called succession planning. Where, Moshe, I want you to identify and tap the next leader while you're still active. And while you're still the leader, I want you to demonstrate his leadership. So how do you do that? By appointing him a maturgaman. I want you to give him a translator for his classes. I want him to start to teach just like you. And the fact that Yoshua will be teaching in your lifetime and you will sit and listen to him will demonstrate to everyone unequivocally that he is the next leader. We don't wait for you, Moshe, to die, then Yoshua will take over and they'll be the part of the shul, I mean the part of the people who will say Yoshua is the man that's what Moshe wanted the other group will say we need to do a search who says Yoshua is the guy we got to do a massive search no in your lifetime Moshe have Yoshua begin to function already as the co-leader the assistant leader and the people will understand that he is your designee that he is the man there's a long Kliyakar here we'll see in a moment if we have time Kliyakar is bothered by a question God tells him Samachta as Yadcha Alav Place your hand on him. But what does Moshe do? He uses both hands. We'll see in a moment. Let's keep reading the Psukim. There's a long Kliyakar to answer that. Put Yoshua in front of Elazar the Kohen, who was the successor of your brother Aaron, and in front of all the people, and give him the charge. Install him as the next leader while you were alive and before their very eyes. And place your hode on him. What is Moshe's hode? 
that he could place on Yehoshua. There's no crown, it's not a scepter, there's no uniform, it's not a strimal. What is his hood? Says Rashi. First of all, the TV so so, look at Rashi and Pasuk Yates. Al Yisrael dash atarchanim him sarbanim him amenashot tekabel alecha. Charge Yoshua in front of their eyes. Tell Yoshua, you see all these people? They're impossible. They're difficult. They're miserable. They're incorrigible. And they're yours. They're your children. V'nasata mehotcha alav. Zekiron or panim. We know Moshe is described when he descends from Harsinai. He's got the two rays of light coming out from his head. It's the origin of when you go to the Midwest and they never met a Jew and they ask you to take a yarmulke off so they could see your horns. Why are they looking for your horns? Because medieval art and others depict Moshe with these horns, these horns of light coming from his head because that's what the Torah itself says, that he descended from Arsinai with these rays of light. So now Moshe is instructed, take these horns of light and give them to Yoshua. Mehodcha Rashi says, V'lo kol hodcha, you can't give him everything. Moshe is likened to the sun, and Yeshua is likened to the moon. The Moora Gadol, the Moora Katan. What's the difference between the sun and the moon? The sun is its own source of light, whereas the moon simply reflects the light of the sun. Moshe, he won't achieve your level of greatness. You are a source of light, but he can reflect your greatness. So, by Salavechik famously said, has been repeated at countless brisim since, that we say at a bris, katan gadol May this katan grow to be a gadol. What are we hoping? You know, he's Jewish. May he hit six feet, make the basketball team. We hope he's going to grow and not need a growth hormone. What exactly is the bracha? katan gadol Said the Rav. No, if you look in Parshas, if you look in Brachas, it says ha gadol katan. The sun and the moon are known as the big luminary and the small luminary. What does it mean to be a gadol? Is to be a source to produce yourself. What does it mean to be a katan? Simply be to be a reflection of someone else. What we're wishing for that child is zeh katan. This moor katan, this little light, who's only a reflection right now, may he grow to be a gadol yiyeh, be a great light who is a source in his own right. So Yoshua, even as a gadol, is considered like the like the Levana, and Moshe is like the Chama. Right, if Nasata Mehotcha love, I'm sorry, what was the Mehotcha? Let me tell you the Pshat of the Sforno. It says the Sforno. Vinasata Mehotcha love, Hod Malchus. This is the glory of monarchy. Tainlo Eza Srara Bechayecha, Sheaschilu Linog Bokavod. The Sforno takes Hodcha literally. Give him an official position, give him a title, let him sit up on the Mizrachvant. Let them wait for him for the Amida. Do something that makes the people realize in your lifetime that he is the successor. Give your hod. Why? Laman Yishmu. Not worried about the average person, but the Sanhedrin, the Ziknei Ha'am. You know, the, the board members, the executive board members, the Sanhedrin, the Ziknei Ha'am. Make it clear to everyone who your successor is so that it is not, so that it's not debatable. Vaiter. And in front of Elazar, 
Stand them there and ask, consult the Urim Batumim, because we know we consult the Urim Batumim, it lights up in order to communicate a message, God's message. So Moshe did what God asked. He takes Yoshua. How did he take him? Look at Rashi. And he told Yoshua, interesting. What did he tell him? This is so rewarding in this world. You're going to have the most rewarding life in this world. No, it's not what he told him. What did he tell him? Says Rashi, he won him over with, he recruited him with words. And what was the word? Were the words? Your world to come, your eternity, for what you will be sovel, for the sivlos you will suffer, and the savlanut that you will show, your schar is liolam haba. Your schar is liolam haba. You might have a lot of misery and challenges in this world from them, but your schar in olam haba, ashrecha, how fortunate, how blessed, how lucky you are, and Moshe wins him over with that. And now Moshe puts his hands in the plural. Not yodcha, not the single hand, but both his hands. And he did everything as God had said. Look at Rashi. He went even more than God. Okay, good. Two more minutes. Give me two more minutes. I want to share with you what Rabbi, what Rabbi Soloveitchik says. There's a lot more to talk about this, but I want to share with you what Rabbi Soloveitchik says on this. The first Mishnah... There's so much to talk about here. First mission in Pirkei tells us that Moshe Kibbal Torah me Sinai misarua li Yoshua. Right? This is the whole like, concept of the Mesora. We spoke about on the second day of Shavuos. What are the boundaries of the Mesora in terms of some of the innovations within segments of orthodoxy today? What is the Mesora? What are the boundaries of Mesora? Who are the Balei HaMesora? So where did it all come from? The Mishnah Navos. That Moshe Kibbal Torah me Sinai misarua li Yoshua. Moshe received the Torah and he was Misarul, Yeshua, Yeshua, the Zakanim, Zakanim, Anshe, Knesset, and so on. The Medrash asks why the Torah was given to Yeshua when others, like Pinchas and Elazar, were even smarter. They had greater intellectual gifts than Pinchas. They did better on the SATs than Pinchas, than, uh, than Yeshua. So why did Yeshua get the Torah? So in reply, the Medrash quotes the Pasuk in Mishle. We saw Rashi quoted it. The one who guards the fig tree will eat its fruit. The one who guards the fruit tree eats its fruit. So Medrash is telling us that Yoshua was chosen because he used to arrange the chairs and spread the mats in the tent before Moshe's shear. And because of his devoted service, he was the candidate to replace Moshe. In other words, successor is not always the smartest. It's not always that they have the best IQ. They have the biggest heart. They're the most devoted. They're the most selfless. Often a leader's successor was chosen not only because of his intellectual prowess, because of his devoted service to his teacher. When the Baal Shem Tov passed away, the mantle of leadership was not given to Rabbi Yaakov Yosef, a Torah giant author of the Toldas Yankiv Yosef. Rather, it passed to the Maggid of Mezrich, who had served the Baal Shem Tov with great devotion and loyalty. When Chaim Velazhin became the successor of his teacher, the Vilna Gon, not only because he was his student, but his confidant. 
the model for transmission of leadership can be derived from the Rambam's prologue to the Mishnah Torah, and here the Rav goes on and on, but it's an interesting insight. Yoshua wasn't necessarily the smartest, but he was the most devoted, and the choice of a leader is not only based on IQ, but it's based on the level of devotion. But what I want to really end with is... Oh, there's so much here. Vayismoch is Yadav. If you don't have the Rav Chumash, you got to get it. Fantastic. Every comment is fantastic. Here he talks about, we know that in the 15th century, 16th century, there was an effort to reinstate smicha. Rav Yaakov Beirav, the Mahari Beirav, in Sfat, there was a big movement and a big debate whether you could reinstate, because this is smicha. This is the origin of smicha. Vayismoch Yadav. Moshe puts his hand, his hands, on Yehoshua, and we have a concept of smicha, ish mi piish, the Yoshua, it went directly from Moshe, person to person, all the way, Ishmi Pi'ish, until that process ceased during the time of the Mishnah, until that process uh, ended. We no longer have smicha. We call it smicha today. Smicha today is a certificate of having passed certain tests, that you have a skill set, that you are qualified to serve in a certain role. That's what smicha is today. But it's not the same smicha that we once had. We have the same concept of smicha, by the way, when it comes to a carbon. The owner of the carbon, on whose behalf the carbon is offered, does smicha. They lean on the carbon. What's the idea? When you lean on something and it bears your weight, it's holding you up. It takes your place. It's true with the carbon, and it's true with the idea of smicha. When we appoint, when we have a smicha, chag has smicha, we appoint leaders. We're leaning on them. We're relying on them. They bear the weight of those who are leaning on them. But anyway, the last comment I'll tell you from, uh, from the Rav is that God commanded Moshe to lay one hand, Yeshua, yet Moshe put both hands. God commanded Moshe not only to do smicha, but to bestow some of your hod on him. There are two Masoros that Moshe transferred to Yeshua. One is the tradition of Torah learning of Lamdus. The second Masorah, the hod, was experiential. One can know the entire Masechah Shabbos and still not yet know what Shabbos is. To truly know what Shabbos is, one has to spend time in a Yiddish home. Even in those neighborhoods made up predominantly of religious Jews, today one can no longer talk of the sanctity of Shabbos. True, there are Jews in America who observe Shabbos, but there are no Arab Shabbos Jews who go out to greet Shabbos with beating hearts and pulsating souls. There are many who observe the precepts with their hands, with their feet, with their mouths, but there are few indeed who truly know the meaning of the service of the heart. Said the Rav, I was raised in a Chabad town. Population of that town consisted almost exclusively of poor people. Workers, tradesmen, particularly peddlers, used to travel to visit the villages within a 15-mile radius of the town. You cannot imagine the primitive conditions in which the Russian peasants lived. People used to come home every Friday afternoon after spending the week in those primitive villages. I watched them come into the shul one by one, water glistening from their peyes and beards because they had immersed in the mikvah. I still remember the tune with which they started to recite upon entering shul, the 107th Psalm. Give thanks to Hashem because He is good. They sang a hymn of gratitude to God. For what? For delivery from captivity? For freeing them from prison? They would cling to God coming home for Shabbos, though they knew very well that the next day after nightfall they would return to the primitive villages surrounding the town. To truly understand what Shabbos is, it's insufficient to merely know the halachas of Shabbos. One should experience a chasidah shashtibah for shalashudas. Not far from where our family lived in Warsaw, I read this to our group in Warsaw a couple weeks ago, there was a majid shashtibah where I would occasionally go for shalashudas. The Hasidim would sing B'nei Hechala, Hashem Ro'i Lo Echsar, then again B'nei Hechala, again Hashem Ro'i Lo Echsar. It occurred to me they weren't singing because they wanted to sing, they were singing because they did not want to allow Shabbos to leave. 
I remember an encounter in the Shtibah as a small child. One of the men who had been singing most enthusiastically, wearing a kapata consisting of more holes than material, approached me and asked if I recognized him. I told him I did not. He introduced himself as Yankel the porter. Now during the week I knew Yankel as someone very ordinary, wearing shabby clothing, walking around with a rope. I could not imagine an individual of such regal bearing could be the same person. Yet, on Shabbos he wore a kapata and a strimal. That's because his soul wasn't Yankel the porter, but Yankel the prince. Well after nightfall I naively asked him, Nu, when do we dive in Marav? He replied, Do you miss the weekday so much that you can't wait to dive in Marav? Do you miss the vach so much that you can't wait for Shabbos to end? This is an educational philosophical problem that has weighed heavily upon me, said the Rav. To contemporary Orthodox Jews, the Torah is revealed in intellectual categories, in cold thought and logic. However, it has not merited being revealed in a living sensory mode, which causes both trembling and gladdening of the heart. They recognize the Torah as an idea, but they do not encounter it as an unmediated reality that one can taste, see, and feel. I can explain Yom Kippur to my students. From an intellectual standpoint, there's much I can transmit. What I cannot pass on are the experiences that I myself underwent on those days. The American Jew has no awareness of the sublime experience of the sanctity of Yom Kippur. I want to describe to them the time of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur that once existed in Europe, and I can't. I would have to bring them to the house where I was raised, show them how Reb Chaim said, Vido in Yom Kippur, Vi'atat Tzadik, gasping for breath, V'anachnu Hershanu, gasping for breath, in the synagogue, the echo of the Amen that followed Sheikh Yano after Kol Nidre, I cannot impart this, it has to be lived. Yoshua not only received the Torah from Moshe, but also had to live Yiddishkeit. His attendant, Yoshua, son of Nun, would not depart from the tent. Yoshua never left Moshe's side. He saw how Moshe davin mincha, how he ate, how he benched, how he accepted Shabbos, how he said vidu and Erev Yom Kippur. He therefore merited both Mesoros, the Mesorah of the mind and the Mesorah of the heart. And although Elazar was a great Lamdan, only Yoshua could transmit Torah to the next generation. Very, very beautiful idea of the two Mesoros. Elsewhere, the Rav describes this more in terms of the Torah of the mother versus the Torah of the father and his eulogy for the Tona Rebetzin. But here he describes it with Yoshua as having been the, the, uh, the bearer of the two legacies of Moshe. That's the Hod. That's what the two descriptions are. And that's why Moshe puts both hands. One hand is the Lumdus, the intellect. And the other hand is, I'm giving you the heart. And in order to be a leader, you have to be able to have both. Have a meaningful fast. We should be Zocha to have no tish above this year. All of our minor fast days should be transformed into days of celebration and joy, Amen. the coming of Mashiach.